Now, here's the thing. Um, I'm going to tell you something they didn't tell me to tell you, and they didn't pay me to tell you, so this is free. I think this is huge. If you are married and you're ready to throw in the towel, or you're like, eh, we just need some tweaks to make things better, this is for you, okay? And Carlos usually uh, puts it this way, that uh, re-engage is for anyone whose marriage is somewhere between a two and a nine. And so if, I mean, if, you, if your marriage is at a one, you're probably going to need bigger guns than re-engage. But if, you're, and your, if your marriage is at a 10, you're either delusional. <laughs> if that's the case, God bless you, that's awesome. Or... You, you should probably be leading re-engage, but regardless, it's something that I would just say, if you've been on the fence or you've heard it over and over again, um, I would just say pull the trigger. You will not regret it. The first, and if you take my word for it and, and go and, and do it, the first several sessions, you're going to be like, I hate Errol, I hate Errol, I hate Errol. About halfway through, all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh wow. Okay, this is, I didn't, I didn't, we're actually doing stuff and getting to a place that I didn't think we could as a, as a couple. So I totally, highly recommend that. Definitely do that. Because as a church, we're a community of Christ followers who are committed to being real with God, right? Real with each other and real in the world. That means that we have to be authentic. And marriage, marriages are hard. They're difficult. Everyone's marriage is difficult, some more than others. And so if we're going to be exporting anything into our community, one, one of the things that we want to be exporting into our community is authenticity and transformation. And we believe that can happen when people finally stop, like, showing this, like, polished exterior and get honest with each other. And so definitely recommend for you to do that. All right. It is awesome to be back. It's great to be in this series called Shaped. And, and our, our goal in this was to pick all of our favorite Bible verses that if you didn't have a Bible, if you didn't have, uh, if you were on a desert island, you didn't have your phone, so you didn't have access to God's word in any way, shape, or form, you could still be shaped by God's word because you'd have it like in your heart. You'd have it in your mind. And many of us stink at memorization. I stink at memorization, but we printed these out so that you could take one of these and we'd be preaching through one of these each week and you'd have it on your dashboard or on your fridge or somewhere in your house that you'd see it every day and at least read it. No one's going to be testing you. You're not going to get a gold star. We don't care. We don't care if you get this verbatim. We just want you to put God's word inside your heart and be shaped by it. And so on your way out, make sure you get what we're studying today, which is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And actually, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn them. Uh, let me just go ahead and see if I can get my remote to work here. Turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 13. And we're going to be starting out with... Okay. All right, Vince, we're going to be having a little uh, fun here. We're going to be starting off with 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 13. That gives us a little bit of context of where we're at. The letter to Corinth was uh, a letter that was um, written by Paul. Paul. I mean, if you think that this church has got issues, you're right. But the church in Corinth had lots more. I mean, baggage and, and like really it was divisive. And they were in a community that was super averse to Christianity. So they hated the fact that these Christians were in their, their neighbors and in their town because they were total prudes compared to everyone else. And, um, and so Paul writes this letter to kind of correct them and encourage them. And so in this particular passage, he gets between uh, verse 6 and verse 13. And in that section, um, he kind of is doing this. He's like, look, I want to talk to you about what my people fail, what they totally biffed on. And so he, like, he flashes back to the Hebrew people. And all through the Old Testament, you see like a highlight reel of bad mistakes. God is super faithful. They're super unfaithful to God. God says, trust me, take my word for it. They're like, okay, we will. And then 15 minutes later, they aren't. And the two main things that the people in the Old Testament failed on, that the prophets kept on calling them out for, one was treating people that were marginalized poorly. The foreigner, the outcast, God was constantly calling people to 
elevate, level up how they treated people who were outcasts and who are on the outside. The second thing was falling into idolatry. That was like one of their main issues. They elevated not only other foreign gods and worshiped them, but just life itself, like doing what you want to do. You do you, that was their mantra. And that was idolatry. And so in this passage, Paul is actually getting to the root of that and, and talking through that. So if you've got your Bible or if you've got the notes, we've got it there microscopically so you can read it with a magnifying glass. Please stand and we'll read uh, from God's word. <laughs> Starting in verse 6 of chapter 10. Now these things occurred, he's talking again about all the stuff from the past in the Old Testament. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did. And they were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. Verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. Thank you. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right. So here's the thing. This is why this passage was such a huge deal to me and why it was one of the ones that I wanted to preach on because I remember being a kid because it really, it focusing in on temptation. I remember as a kid going to church, some of you grew up going to church and, and maybe this is you now even if you're an adult, but I remember going to church and just like when the pastor started talking, who happened to be my dad, it was just like, it was just kind of like, what, what can I draw? Like I, I spent the whole service, you know, taking out these like giving envelopes or first time visitor cards and just drawing. I mean, that's how I got through a service and it was awesome. But whenever a pastor, whether it was my dad or someone else, whenever they got to a passage that focused on temptation, I paid attention from junior high on. And junior high on, all of a sudden, this issue became something that I was highly, intensely interested in. Why? Because in junior high, all of a sudden, that was like one of the first times in my life where I really, really realized that God had this calling on my life and this desire for me, these choices that he wanted me to make, that I wanted to do the opposite of. I, God was calling me this way, and I'm like, yeah, but there's like this tractor beam of, of like gravitational pull away from that to do what I wanted to do. And I remember like in junior high for me, it was like all of a sudden like that was like where lust just started like was just going crazy. Like all of a sudden I, I paid attention to things that I wasn't paying attention to at four, right? And it was like one of those things where I, I as a junior high boy, I could not stop thinking you know, of, 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 of ladies and sex and everything. And all of a sudden, it was just like constantly there. So all of a sudden, passages like 1 Corinthians 10, 13, all of a sudden let me know, oh, this thing is actually real. This thing is actually applicable to my everyday life. It's not just a bunch of like religiosity. It's actually practical for Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And that was a game changer for me. Um, because one of the things that I realized was, again, my brain was not doing what God wanted to do. Last week, um, I, how many of you have a refrigerator? Yes. Yes, we are wealthy, aren't we? Yes. I love refrigerators. They have one job. What's the job? Keep it cold. Now, that's great until it stops doing its one job. And we have, my, my, my wife and I, we have a fridge, uh, refrigerator that's, does anyone work for Whirlpool? 
good. Whirlpools stink. We bought one, and it is honestly, so, most everything good, except for what I found is that they've got parts that go bad. And one of the, I opened up the fridge last week, and I opened it up, and all of a sudden it was like, hmm, that's not right. That's not right. And it's like all of a sudden things that should be cold were what? Warm. That's not good. The refrigerator is not doing its one job. And so I'm like, is it like, is it the cooling coils or other parts that I don't really know the right names of? Is it all these things, compressor, alternators, uh, niners, what, <laughs> the ball bearings? What, what, what is it in that that's like not working? And I have no idea. So I do what any manly man does. I look on YouTube and I start like searching the model number and everything else. And I find out that this particular kind of whirlpools are constantly failing, not in the primary function of the fridge, but in one small part that fails. And that one small part that fails impacts everything out, everything else. And that part that fails is called the jazz board, which is way too cool a word for something that breaks. And the jazz board is basically that little part um, when you open up the fridge that has like the, the coolness level. Okay, so in ours, it's like the, the freezer is one through seven, the refrigerator is one through seven, and you boop, 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 you put it wherever you want, and then you walk away. Except for in our fridge, the one that was warm, they just had dashes. No numbers, just dashes. And, I, and no matter how many times I pressed the button, it wasn't fixing it. Because the jazz board, the computer chip inside, the brains of the, of the fridge, was broken. Just that one, it's like this big, this small bit of a, of a microchip makes the, the whole function of what that thing was designed to do fail to do what it was designed to do. And that was my brain in junior high. Or that's what I was realizing about my brain in junior high. And I so thought that that was going to go away when I got older. I thought that my broken brain with regard to lust was going to like just dissipate when I got married, right? Because that, that, that solves the problem, right? And it didn't. And all of a sudden I realized that this is a lifer. This thing of like wanting to do what the heart wants to do, which ends up totally frustrating you. That, that's something that is a lifer for people that, that are not just 13 years old, but 73 years old. And it's one of those things that I saw that, that my, the thing that was, I was so frustrated was that, that I couldn't control that. Um, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, I listened to a little bit of Blink-182 a little bit of newfound glory. And so it's pop punk, right? And so pop punk in that, in that era, basically they kind of followed a, a particular formula of sound and content. The content of the songs were basically um, recklessness uh, as far as like lack of responsibility, getting wasted, and girls. I mean, that was kind of like a great formula to make pop punk music to at the end of the 90s, early 2000s. 20 years goes by. So now these, these guys who were like in their 20s when they're writing this music initially, 20 years goes by, now they're old. They're like in their 40s. <laughs> that's not funny that's real <laughs> it's real and so these these old people now are writing music and and they they re-released uh blink 22 released an album called california in 2016 an amazing musical piece I, I i mean it's really really good as far as the music the content though it was like it was like a basically they cut and pasted what they were writing when they were in their 20s Reckless uh, lack of circumstances lack lack, lack of um, ramifications of decisions getting wasted in girls it was basically like old men now writing about what they were writing about when they were younger men, which doesn't age well. And I, was, I remember like as much as I liked the content of the music, the content of the lyrics really bummed me out as a guy who was just a little bit younger than those guys. Newfound Glory, who also wrote that same kind of music late 90s, early 2000s, released an album the following April, April of 2017. And the album that, that they released was called Makes Me Sick. 
and, and makes me sick was based, it was, this was a fascinating change because even though these, these bands came, rose to power right the, at the same time, this album 20 years later was different than Blink's California. This album actually was this processing, how did we make decisions? And what do we think about that now two decades later? And one of the songs on this album that really stood out to me is the song about this, the difficulty of making decisions when you know what you should do and yet you know what the heart wants, which is what you shouldn't do and, and, and what ends up happening. And the song is called The Sound of Two Voices. And the, verse, the first verse goes like this. I must be honest, under the surface, it grinds like a blender, the sound of two voices. My heart seems to fail me. It put me in a stranger's bed. It hurt who I love the most. I'll never trust it again. And then it goes to the chorus. And then it gets into the next verse. The next verse is, Envy is endless. I used to put mistakes up on a board, comparing how mine sticks next to the rest of the world's. That got me nowhere, but miles from changing. Now I've got deep stains, and bleach won't erase them. It's not as simple as do what makes you happy. If that's the same thing, that will destroy me. And then it comes back to the chorus, and the chorus is this. That's why I don't want what I want. Because what I want, it just might kill me. And I won't think of my needs, because what I need, I know there's never enough for me. These guys aren't believers, I don't think. But they release this amazing, thoughtful piece of what does it look like to look back on what I used to say yes to temptation-wise and looking at the ramifications of going and doing what the heart wants when the heart wants, letting that be your rationale for making a decision or this makes me happy. But recognizing that, that ultimately surrendering to that temptation is disastrous. And so within Scripture, there's an answer to this. There's a rationale. Because a lot of times we think of temptation as not that big of a deal. A second piece of pizza? Tempting. It's like not a big deal. It's innocuous. But the reality is that there's a deeper-seated thing that's going on inside of a, a person, a human being's heart, with temptation. And so this is the, the definition that I wrote up to help describe what the Scripture seems to portray. Temptation is the allure to betray God's dream for your life by sabotaging his work with choices that falsely promise happiness, wholeness, or escape. Okay, once again, temptation is the allure to betray God's dream for your life. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're an agnostic or, or a believer, God's got a dream for your life. And what temptation does is it, 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 it's causing you to, it's making a sales pitch to you to rethink what God's dream for you is, and if it's even good, and, and whether or not you should do what you want to do by sabotaging his work with choices that falsely promise happiness, wholeness, or escape. And again, the reason that I say falsely promise that is because temptation always promises happiness, but it leaves you with depression. And it, it, it gives you happiness for a moment, but it, it leaves you with depression. It promises fulfillment, but it leaves you empty. It promises you escape, but it leaves you trapped. And it promises you memories, and it gives you memories, but oftentimes memories that you regret. That's temptation. And God who loves you wants to rescue you from that. And so we've got pastors like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that step in and say, this is a human condition. But if you're a Christian, you have a choice. Because you don't have just a, a broken jazz board. 
God's given you a new mind, which means that you're always going to be wrestling with the jazz board that's broken, but you have a new mind. You've got the capacity to make a decision that defies temptation and is actually more in line with God's dream for you. And so what we're going to talk about today is that. We're going to talk about the three promises God gives us about temptation that we find in this passage. And I I hope that you see by the end of this why this verse is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Why it was not just helpful for me when I was a junior higher, but how it's been a verse that's been shaping me all the way up into my my 40s. And I hope that it's something that you find to be similarly impactful. Here's the first promise that we see in this passage. You're not alone in this. With regard to temptation, you're not alone. You're not alone. This is what he says. He says in in the first part of 13, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. This word common to mankind, it's uh, anthropos, and, and all, that mean, all that phrase means is humanly. Like, no temptation has attacked you except for stuff that happens to humans. If you're a living, breathing human, awesome, congratulations. However, one of the side effects is you're going to get temptation. And, and the problem is it's common. You're going to have freaky, weird temptations that you're going to want to share with nobody. And you're going to have temptations that are so, like, bland that you wouldn't mind surfacing it in a group of strangers because no one's going to care. The reality is, is if you're human, there's going to be temptations. But no temptation is overtaking you except for what is common to mankind. The first promise from Scripture is you're not alone. Now, there's good news to that, but there's also bad news. Let me just tell you the bad news of this promise. Um, have any of you ever totally bombed a test in class? Like, to- like totally. Like, not just like, I got a B minus, but like you totally bombed it, okay? All right. Yeah, nerds, come on. You know I'm talking about like if you really bombed it. Okay, I've bombed a test. And have you ever been the one, like, you're like one of the only people who's bombed in your class? How's that feel? Awful. It's terrible. Like, I'm so dumb. I'm such a dummy. Why I, I'm the only one that's stupid in the whole class. Now, how many of you have ever felt, or how, how many of you have ever bombed a test, but you weren't the only one, and a majority of your class also bombed? How does that feel? Awesome. <laughs> You're like, I'm not dumb at all. Here's the thing. You're just as dumb. You're just as dumb if you were the only one who bombed, but now you're dumb with company. <laughs> You've got a community of dumb, a multitude of morons. And you're like sitting there and you're like, actually, this is, I feel much better about myself. Why? Because I'm not alone. That's the dark side. Because my mistake, my failure is so what? Common. That's the danger for any human, but specifically for Christians. Because we can oftentimes go, you know what? Yeah, am I tempted to do this? Do I stumble in temptation? Yeah, but everybody is. I mean, like, I'm not alone. It's so common. That's the dark side. Here's the bright side for a believer. Paul's intent was not to bum you out with that. Paul's intent was instead to let you know that what you have is this amazing capacity to realize that you're in the trenches with other people who could be honest about the fact that they're also struggling with temptation. So back to junior high, Errol McFadden. I meet Victor Gamboa. We become friends. Victor becomes a Christian. He wasn't a Christian before. He becomes a Christian. And now Victor and I are two junior high guys who are are just as attracted to girls, just as as ready to do stupid stuff with our life. And we're making, you know, we are making terrible decisions as much as we're making good decisions. The great thing about Victor and Errol back then was that we had each other. We weren't alone, and we were honest. And so when he was able to share with me things that he was struggling with, I was able to share with him things that I was struggling with. And as true Christian guys who were tempted to do everything that's all around us, we were able to be honest with each other. Do you have anyone in your world like that, that you could be honest with the things you struggle with? 
This is why we believe in groups at Mission Bible Church, because you, you, need to, you need to be in community with people that you can actually be honest with, right? This is why Celebrate Recovery is so vital, because we need places that, where you can be so authentic and honest, where you realize that what they say is true, that you're only as sick as your secrets. If you are secretly struggling with temptation, you will find yourself failing time and time again. You need to find someone who you can be honest with about what you struggle with because, you know, and the, the good news is you're not alone. You're not, whatever you're struggling with, you're not a freak. You're human. And God loves you enough to remind you that you're not alone. That's the first promise. The second promise is this. The second promise is that God won't allow a single temptation to hit you that is too strong for you. God won't allow a single temptation to hit you that is too strong for you. Let's go back to the classroom. Okay, in the classroom, you've got a situation here where, let's get the, there we go. Um, let's say like you're back in the classroom and let's just say that there's not a single, uh, like let's say that uh, any test that was given to you, you knew you would pass with an A. You know, you would pass with flying colors. Like, what if you went into any class and, and God said, I'm promising you that whatever test you have, you're going to get an A on it. I'm going to give you the capacity to get an A on every test. I, I, I could take a first grader and put a first grader in Yale, and whatever test that first grader has who's still learning how to read, they're going to pass it with an A. God is going to divinely do that. How amazing would that be? What if in a situation with a workplace environment, in a workplace environment, all of a sudden you knew that whatever project that was given to you or assignment it was given to you, you would not be overcome by, you would actually succeed. There's not a single project that would ever be given to you, assigned to you, slotted for you, that you wouldn't pass with flying colors because God promised you that. Wouldn't that be an amazing promise? What if you had a promise that if you stepped into the octagon of an MMA fight, no matter what MMA fighter, trained MMA fighter, no matter who gets into the ring, you stepping into the ring, I promise you, God says, you're going to win. You're going to win this fight. They're going to come at you. They're going to bring, they, they are trained killers. They could kill you. They would enjoy it. And, and, but this guy's coming at you and all you got to do, and all of a sudden they're on their back. You're like, what? What if God promised you that every time you stepped into the octagon, that would happen? That would be amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? Here's the crazy thing. That's exactly what he's saying in this passage with regard to temptation. Temptation is stepping into the octagon. Temptation is going to do battle. It's an outside force attacking you. But there's not one temptation that's attacked you that, except for what's common to man. And this, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. There's not a single temptation. What are you tempted by? What are the temptations that, that just battle you? Some of you have been wrestling with the same temptations for years. Some for decades. What are some of the Achilles heels, like the weak points that you have, that you're like, man, that's the, those are the temptations that I consistently have, whether it's sexual, or it's like, I feel like I'm constantly lying, or I'm constantly stretching the truth about myself because I feel like I need to make myself sound better or look better, or, or I feel like I'm constantly like ripping on people behind their backs because somehow or another that makes me feel better about myself, or I feel like I'm taking things that aren't mine and hiding it. What is it that you wrestle with? Because whatever that is, it's getting into the octagon with you, and you might say, this is overwhelming, it's overpowering, and God says, no, that's why you fail. You fail because you think that this thing that's got into the octagon is stronger than you are. And you're right. It is stronger than you are. But that's why Paul says in this passage, and God is faithful. 
You're not in the octagon alone. Alone you will fail. Alone you will be overcome. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You are not in the octagon against your temptation all by yourself. And here's the promise from God. This is not a promise from Errol. This is a promise from God. Every single time you are tempted, not most of the time, not 50% of the time, not 99% of the time, 100% of the time that you are tempted, that temptation is coming at you. If you recognize that you are in the octagon, you're in the ring with God, and you tap into his strength, you will not be overcome. You will have victory every time, 100% of the time. The reason you fail is because you don't believe that. The reason we fail is because we believe that this is too overpowering. I can't possibly avoid this temptation for my whole life. And you're right. God never promised you your whole life. He promised to give you enough today. We've got to trust him for today, enough strength for today to defy that sabotaging instinct to do what we want to do or what our heart wants to do and instead lean in to what God is calling us to. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. You, God will not allow you a single temptation to hit you that'll, that's too strong for you. So, you're not alone. Two, there's not a single temptation that's going to hit you that's too strong for you. God's strength inside of you is stronger than the, the temptation outside of you. And third promise is this, is that God will always give you a specific exit. God will always give you, every time you're tempted, a specific, if you're a Christian, a specific exit. This is what he says in the last part of that verse. But when you are tempted, and I love that because he's not like, you know, if you're tempted or if you're a really naughty, naughty person, you get tempted. No, it's like you're going to get tempted. You're a human. Again, you're breathing. This is a side effect of humanity. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I love that because here's the thing. I don't know in your situation if God's going to give you like you're tempted, like let's say you're tempted later on today for whatever. I don't know what it is, but you get this temptation. I don't know if, if God's going to give you like five ways out or 50 ways out. I don't know. He doesn't promise any of that in this passage, but what he does promise is A. He promises A way out. And, and, and that A way out is, is something that's so important. And I think it could probably show up in different ways, but can I just walk you through how this works in my mind? I want to walk you through how this one way out could it possibly be, if, if, if it's anything, if, if there's five ways out, this is at least one of them. Because if you're a Christian, then, you, then God speaks to you. You hear his voice. You hear his voice through his word. This is part of the reason why we're such a, we're such a big, this, the whole memorizing scripture is such a big deal to us is because we believe that if we do that, all of a sudden we hear God's voice when we need it most. And so the next time you're tempted, you, you just basically say, okay, I'm coming to this temptation not as a free agent. I'm not an arrow follower. I'm not a culture follower. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. So what does Jesus say? Because I, I have to make his authority even over what, what will make me happy or what I want or what my heart wants. Because again, my heart is consistently betraying me. And so what I, the way I look at this is, is a couple ways. First off, like, just like, think about the, the temptation to sin sexually. Um, I go to 1 Corinthians 6.18. That's where I hear God's voice. <clears throat> God's voice says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality, like run away from it. That word sexual immorality is a word, uh, pornea, which is anything that falls outside of the design that God has for hu romantic human sexuality. And, and what we have in scripture is romantic human sexuality is the, this, this thing that's, that's preserves away from this short-term relationship, but is this bonded relationship between a husband and a wife. 
But that's, that's where God says that human romantic sexuality dwells and that anything outside of that is sexual immorality. And he says this, flee from that. And the reason he says flee from that is because, again, the church in Corinth, everyone was like, what's the big deal? <laughs> what's the big deal, man? If you think America is like easy on sex, you should have gone to Corinth back in the first century. It was bananas. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Side note, Johnny Cash, um, he got off drugs based on the last part of that verse. Recognizing, like, if my body is, is the temple of God and it's not my own, then I, I, I don't make decisions based on what I want to do because what I want to do is, is coke. But instead, I need to honor God with my decisions. So it's interesting. But with regard to the whole sexual thing, that helps me, like, so when, when, when I'm single, if I'm a single person, that helps me say, I want to have a romantic sexual experience psychologically or physically outside of a relationship with, with, with a spouse, with my husband or wife. If, 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 me growing up, like, when I was 17 years old, I was not married. And so I, I had a desire to have a romantic sexual experience with someone outside of my wife. And so that's sexual immorality. And so I, I go the other way. That's what I want. That's what I want to obsess about, but I don't do that. And the reason I don't do it is not because I'm a spiritual, awesome, godly guy, just because I'm not in charge of my life. If I'm in charge of my life, I go for it. God gives me choice to do that, but I get the opportunity to follow his lead. This is the thing that helps me as, as well. Is like if, I, if I'm with my friends that are straight, with my friends that are gay, if they're followers of Jesus, then they have this opportunity to say, okay, Scripture says that Romantic human sexuality happens between a husband and wife. And that may not be my deal. Like I'm either straight and single or, I, I'm, or, or I'm, I'm not attracted to someone of the opposite sex. And so that means that God's ultimate dream for me must land outside of romantic sexuality as being the fulfillment of all that I'm supposed to be about. God has a better dream for me. If God has got a better dream for me, then I can trust him. Is that what I want? Heck no. I want to do what I want to do. The heart wants what the heart wants. But the amazing thing about as a follower of Jesus is I'm not following me. I'm a Christ follower, and so I follow Christ. Now, I wouldn't impose that on someone who's not a Christian. But as a Christ follower, me, or someone I get a chance to hang with my friends and share this perspective with, then we get a chance to say God's got a better dream than even sex for humanity. It's true. And, and that's one of the things that I get a chance to say, that's my way out. No matter where I land on the spectrum, that's, where I, that's my way out. Uh, in, our, in cultures, you see people fall into the temptation to slide into classist, sexist, bigoted, tribal perspectives where we marginalize people because of how they look, their skin color, their nationality, whatever. That's so commonplace. So that's a temptation. And so what do I do? I go back to Scripture. Genesis 1.27 says that we're created in God's image. That means every human being, no matter what, has dignity, honor, and worth owed them. Every culture throughout human history has had a, a pecking order of who's valuable and who's not. Who you can marginalize and who you should put up on a shelf. And Christians are called for 2,000 years to defy culture and say, no, just because of this person's race, just because of this person's nationality, this ba their background, their gender, whatever. I'm called regardless even if I don't agree with you, I'm, recalled, I'm required to give you dignity, honor, and worth because I'm a follower of Jesus, not a follower of Errol. J, uh, Galatians 3.28 says, there is neither Jew, 
Paul goes through and just basically dismantles all the way that we classify people in, in that time. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. So if you're a Christ follower, you're going to have a temptation to be tribal. Defy that temptation. Even if the culture says it's okay, don't do it. Even if your subculture says it's okay, don't. Follow God's lead and defy that temptation. There's a temptation to slide into rage, abuse, and anger. I came across a a stat that I really hope is an overblown stat, but I'm afraid that it's not. And the stat says this, that in the United States of America today, every 60 seconds, there are 20 new people who are the victims of physical abuse, most of whom are abused, physically abused by people they know and within their house. Every minute, 20 new. Now, in our country, there's a lot of people that identify themselves as Christians, as Christ followers. Wouldn't it be amazing if some of those Christ followers or if all those Christ followers went through this same grid and said, hold on, I know what I want. I want things to be right. And right now things aren't right. So I'm going to raise my voice and I'm going to start using more abrasive language because I'm really ticked off about this. And you know what? That's not enough. I'm just going to go and start to like, things are going to start to like come unhinged. And they feel that because that's what the heart wants. The heart wants to to have justification and things to be right. I'm going to make it right. But all of a sudden I go, but hold on a second. I'm being tempted to do something I need a way out in. James 1, 19 to 20 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So if I'm a Christian and I know that my Achilles heel, the thing that I'm tempted in is rage. Man, you know what? Don't mess with me. You mess with me, you're going to be sad and sorry. I will take you down. And I know that about me. Let's just say I do. Then when I'm starting to get triggered by what people are saying, and I'm starting to get angry, and I'm starting to let my blood is boiling, my adrenaline is starting to pump, and all of a sudden I'm ready to start saying stuff that I can't take back, I stop. And I realize that I've got a way out. And I shut up. And I beg God for the strength for 60 seconds just to be quiet. I beg God for the ability just to walk away. We beg God for the ability to walk away from a conversation, from a party where we're just like surrounded by stuff that we know is messed up and we know that we're weak. We beg God for the ability to walk away from the computer, from, from the device. We beg God to give us the capacity to make the decisions that are in line with his dream for us because we know at the end of the day, those are the ones, those are the ones that we live with and love We beg God for the ability to shark tank every temptation that comes our way. And the temptation presents it as this is the most attractive thing you should do. And everyone everyone actually agrees with me. And you're kind of on the outside. This is going to give you the ability to escape. This is going to give you the ability to be fulfilled. And you look and you say, you know what? I hear what you're saying. I totally agree. That sounds like that. And in fact, you're speaking my language. I know I would be happy if I chose to do that. I know that I would be fulfilled or I would have an escape if I did that. But you know what? That's not the whole story. Because even if that were the case, I'm not my number one authority. My creator is. 
And, I, and not only will what you're suggesting ultimately disappoint me and leave me more enslaved, but it's, it's going to not just disappoint me, it's going to disappoint him. I've got a better life than that, a better future than that. And so for all those reasons, I'm out. And walk away. I guarantee you, 100%, you will not regret it. Because we're the type of people that can lean in to the way out. Church, what I'd like us to do is to stand as we close. And I'd like us to read this passage. I'd love for you to, on your way out, to grab this verse, live it out. But I want us to read this as a congregation of people. And if you're a follower of Jesus, man, life is, it's tough. And temptation is going to be with you until your last breath. But the lie that you have no victory is a lie you can let die today. Because God has given you the promises from this passage. Promises that you're not alone. There's not a single temptation that'll hit you that is too strong for you with God. And that regardless of what you're going through, honestly, honestly, he's going to give you a way out. Let's read this together. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it church. Let's step into this and live this out. Whether you're 10 years old or you're 80, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've got the capacity to live this. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go do that. We'll see you next week.